Shirt Show. All right, let's go. Shirt Show! Preparing sportswear in Michigan. Let's go! Hey there, cutie patootie. I gotta turn you up in my ears, though. Hang on. That's what they all say. I know. <laughs> do you like so, my easy strip? I do. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Is that from a show? It is from like the early '90s. That's sweet. I figured we'd bring it out. It's got the retro action. Got the awards up there next to it. Is there? I think so. Oh yeah. Unless those Absolutely. are made up. Those are made up. No, those are printing United Awards and a uh Green Conscious Award for biotechnology. Wow. You yeah. Fancy. Yeah, no. No. So what's the, what how's do, it going? Man. Oh, dude. I haven't seen you in a while. At Printing United, I think I saw you for 14 seconds. Yeah, and it all 14 was... seconds of it, you were telling me how ready to go home you were. Dude. <laughs> I had like, that was the end of a bender for me. It was like, I think I traveled 11 of 12 weeks coming into that show. And I was just like, I was toasted, dude. <laughs> it, was, I know, it was tough. I can tell. I know, but, you know, it's a, you know, it's, it's a tough time when Alex of all people is like, I'm going to go home, go to bed at seven o'clock. That's it. I was, <laughs> I was. You're usually done. the late dog where I, I see know. you randomly on the street at three in the morning. Oh, I hope not that late, but yeah, <laughs> but no question, dude. It's, it was, I was just tired yeah. and, uh, anyways, everything's good. I mean, the sales of the show are good. Mm -hmm. We're busy as ever. We have the biggest backlog ever at both easy way and blue water. So we're just, I don't know. We're busy, man. Hell yeah. I'm loving the life. Can't beat it. I know. It's awesome. Um, Obviously, I have a blue water and I have a lot of people that ask me about it all the time. And yeah. I just kind of say how much I like it and then I defer them to you. But what is happening with blue water right now? Because, I mean, for the people who don't know. Yeah. I mean, you're at shows now and you're like. We're at shows now. Yeah. Going everything been off. A little over two years in business now, officially. And uh we're trying, we're trying to blow up. We're at uh, Long Beach. We're taking a massive booth. We're bringing three inline machines. We're launching two new machines at Long Beach. Uh, one's a solvent recirculator that cleans squeegees and flood bars and de-ink screens. And then uh, we're launching a new mini machine for all the mid-level shops. It'll be the, it'll be like a ecologically priced machine that does a complete reclaim job. So I don't, I don't know. We can do this we're a little bit. I'm, I'm going to try to get this in before the guest gets in, but yeah, give me, and we've talked about this, give me the reasoning without throwing people under the bus, why you saw kind of like a hole or a better way to go about it than what's out there currently. I think, because I think that's the thing, that was the thing for me, I mean, we're yeah. friends, but, and yeah. that's kind of why I was like all in, but like. I was noticing when I was researching different units that there was there was issues with all of them. And I was like, well, which is and then you get to yeah. the point where you're like, which is the lesser of two evils? Like, I, I know they're all going to do the job, but like there's this problem with these machines and there's this problem with these machines. And kind of you were the Goldilocks sweetness in the middle. Well, we just tried to change what 
what's done, right? So we're historically uh, known for selling dip tanks, right? Like that's yep. what we've done for the last, you know, 30 of the 40 years we've been in business. And I looked at all the automated machines. I said, they're either a step or two short. They're just not, they all clean screens, but it's an inefficient way to do it. Right. So they're, you know, well, all our the, competitors the run sell, the solvent first. The big sell for me too was like, uh, if anybody's going to sell me a machine to clean screens, it's going to be the guy who fucking knows everything and sells everything that has to do with cleaning screens. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, I appreciate that. I love it. But I'm just saying, a like, lot of if our, you're, if you're, <laughs> I know, but if you're an equipment manufacturer, yeah, and yeah. all you've done is make screen printing equipment and then you're like, oh, now we're going to make a reclaim yeah. unit. That's cool. Yeah, and I'm tough. sure, and it's great, yeah. but like, wouldn't you want to go to the guy who this is his career this is literally yeah. just this part of the, the and whole I thing? think some of our competitors do the same thing. They just, I don't know what happened whenever automated screen cleaning equipment was invented, but some guy came out with a design. I don't know who it was. I'm sure it was long ago. And everyone said, yeah, that works. And they all just kind of made different versions of the same machine. Right. And so we made a different machine entirely. Our order of operations is different. How we approach it's different. Uh, the finishing touches we put in the machine are different. And so I think that's what massively sets us apart. So it's it's the order of operations, which is reduces chemical cost and cleans a screen the way you would clean it manually anyways. Right. Instead that of was, reversing it. That was one of the selling points for me that kind of, again, like not to tarnish anybody's equipment, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with any of them. It's just the biggest thing I heard for all the brands was basically like uh, like chemicals mixing together or having issues they, with them 100%. fighting each other or foaming yeah. or just all these issues or just tanks being disgusting and wasting chemical and all this other stuff. Yeah. And or some that have like brushes and like all like. I don't know, all these different things. And I was like, yeah. how, and I'm a guy where I'll go buy a brand new car, but I yeah. will get it dumbed down, no bells and whistles because it's more shit to break. Like it's more, more shit keep, to go wrong. Yes. I love the kiss method. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. That's like, that's <laughs> the way to roll. But the thing was, is the, the argument for your machine was the only chemical in the machine is 701. That's it. So there's no mixing of chemicals. No. Nope. And, and what's funny, again, like, I, I really don't want this to sound like a thing where I'm just hyping it up. But we had that issue with our machine because it was kind of like an earlier beta machine or whatever, where yeah. mine's different than the new ones where mine has two it pressure is. washers. Well, remember when I had one pressure washer that wasn't working? Yep. <laughs> and we didn't know. still clean We screens. didn't know for like two <laughs> weeks because they were coming out clean. Yeah that we were kind of at like half power That's, and we still didn't we didn't know we didn't understand and so we started seeing issues with uh like there being chemical on the screen still and we we're like yeah. oh shit like half the machine is doing the work and then yep. the rinse part is is having issue but again yep. that wasn't that wasn't anything that had to do with the machine it was our own like we had our own water issue to the machine thing well it doesn't matter yeah it's but that's it's i always say you know, the way I describe it is like 80 to 90% of the work is done in the tank up front. The right. machine is for finishing. Yeah. Like it, 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 it's like the dab on top, the cherry on top yeah. of ice cream sundae. Right? right. And it seems silly to have an entire long machine to just do that cherry part. 
but that's what makes them come out clean every time. Right. So for the people who don't know, what's the difference? Like what's the difference between your machine and the other machines? So uh, most of our competitors, I'll say, I can't say all, but let's say 90% of the competitors, they all go solvent, emulsion remover, power washer. And of course, like you said, they all work. They've worked for years. Otherwise people wouldn't have bought them. Right. Right. Uh, it's just chemically inefficient because when you run solvent first, you're making it responsible for bulk ink removal and you're only dehazing that last image area because all the emulsion is still on the on the mesh. Right? right. So that solvent gets contaminated really quickly, having to remove all the ink and then it sprays on the ER and power washes and it, it does fine. With our machine, when you take it out of the tank and put it on the belt, it power washes the ink and the emulsion off first. So right. you're using an inexpensive dip tank chemical to do a lot of the work and then power wash all the dirty off the screen in the first chamber. So then by the time you hit the, you know, we call 701 chamber, but the solvent chamber, uh, you end up dehazing and degreasing the entire open mesh versus just that last image area. Right. And the solvent stays clean three, four, five times as long because the only ink that's getting in there is the little bit of haze left in the screen, right. not that bulk ink. So the not chemical cost drops. Yeah. And then we have a flood rinser and we have air knives at the end of the machine. So it dries the screens as it goes out. And right. we got all kinds of like uh, a lot of things we do that other people don't is we put blowers inside of the machine to keep water where water should be and chemical where chemical should be. And so we isolate our chambers really well. So we don't get that drag out you were talking about before. Yeah. And like you, like you said, though, like you have this long machine that just kind of does the finishing, but it's kind of like the first foot of the machine takes all the shit off. It does. And then the That's other, exactly whatever it. it is, like yeah. six, eight feet Seven or whatever feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is yeah. just like, kind of like, pressure washing and flood rinsing and just making sure it's like That's super it. clean. That's it. Um, but the other cool part was the air knives because yeah. where we live, we have like town water. So we yeah. have like minerals and all this other stuff in the water. Yep. And when we were taking them out wet and racking them, we ended up with fish eyes yeah. in the emulsion because just the water from would calcium and other, other things. Yeah. Right? So the yeah. air knives were making it to where the water was basically, it's not dry, dry, but it's no, like, no, no, no. it's, it's not drip dripping it's like it knocks off the bulk water so that when you do put them in a screen rack when you're walking them over to the screen room you don't end up with those drips in the mesh right. they're you know? most yeah that's yeah. mostly handled but it's awesome that it's what it is today i mean just yeah. from when it started and i the reason why i wanted to have you on as my co-host today is a i wanted to talk a little bit about blue water because i've been asked a lot about it and i wanted you to kind of like demystify I, I guess some of that stuff yeah, yeah. but also me and you have both had multiple conversations about labor oh yeah and dealing with that one. and our guest today mitch at perrin obviously has like 300 employees that's unreal so man i want to ask so him crazy the cherry on top i want to ask him is like how yeah. do you yeah. manage and retain 300 people I mean, there's shops bigger, smaller, whatever, but yeah. just 300 people in general to me sounds disgusting. And like the, well, it's that terrible number one. It sounds like a lot, right? And two, like the training process, like mm -hmm. you're obviously having to onboard people frequently. Like, how do you handle that training process? Right. Well, for you, like a newer company, yeah, you're more looking for people to do manufacturing to make these machines and people to install these machines and everything like yep. that. And that's why I'm saying like, 
I don't know. I think we we need someone like Mitch to be like, like it's okay. You're like, you know what I mean? Like, just a, a nice him, guiding sense. Calm, him down, calm us down and be like, <laughs> what, like, what the fuck are you guys worried about? You got like, yeah. you got like ten employees, and then this is how you handle this, right? He's like, I've, you know, I'm this way because I I deal with this many people, but yeah. I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's like, it's nerve wracking. And I had multiple meetings today here where I was just talking about yeah. like employees and figuring things out. And it's just like, I, I, yeah. Screen printing industry is one of those weird ones where you can be any size or have any like direction or niche or whatever. And it's totally fine and totally different. Yeah. It's not like you have to be Mitch to be a good screen printer. No, it's just a or different even, direction or even what we deem as successful. Right. I mean, oh, yeah, definitely. It's uh, I mean, how many little manual shops do you see that are just crushing it right? Now? Oh, yeah, definitely. Or just like on the beach and they print shirts here and there and they just live their life. And it's amazing. It seems spectacular. I know. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I am curious as to like the level of what we do to be like, OK, let's do this to where it's you know, 15, 16, 20 autos and 300 people and yeah, like multiple shifts, scheduling and all shifts and yeah, just the whole thing. scheduling, training, all of it. Just how do you manage? Yeah. All of that. Hold it's on. Unreal. I got a, um, I totally forgot about sponsors. You get to hear your own sponsor. It's going to be weird. I love it. No, it's perfect. Okay. You didn't, you probably don't have a Frank button, but. What are you talking about? Oh, you do have a Frank I button. I got a Frank button. All right, all right. You got to hit me with it. Frank. Okay, you got to do my parts. I don't have them. You don't have to. No. Well, you can just say. I love Frank. And <laughs> I love his restretch program. And I think he's a great guy. He's a great guy. And you should all visit him at Long Beach. Mm-hmm. I don't know if. I don't want to speak for Frank, but I don't know if he likes visitors at his actual place. But you should know that show. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's like his place is packed. Yeah, it's amazing. Like he is to see. He's busy. He's got stuff stacked everywhere. Like mm-hmm. it's a pretty amazing shop. It is. It really is. All right. It all starts with a screen, and whether it's new stretches or restretches, Frank and his team do it the best. To find out more, go to graphicscreenfashion.com, ffffrank.com, <laughs> <laughs> or greatfuckingscreens.com. Boom. All right. I'm not even going to do the normal fucking easy way pitch. This is your own thing. You can sell your own. You can sell yourself right now. Tell us about easy way, well, Alex. I think we are... Uh, the most diverse and versatile uh, screen chemical company in this industry right now, from California compliant products, low VOC, to high quality, efficient products, to our ability to integrate chemicals into machines. Uh, Come talk to us. We'll be in Long Beach in a really big way in the biggest booth we've been in (laughs) ever. Because easy way. It's the easiest way. And you're welcome for that slogan, by the way. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> it's been it's been adapted by a few other podcasters i see i know i know that's and, funny. And, and our own social media team and right. uh basically everything now the funny thing is is i can't even i don't even think of other <clears throat> like chemical companies anymore it's just 
I just want to. Well, you shouldn't. (laughs) No, I know, but I'm just saying, like, I there's no there's no comparison anymore. I can't love you, buddy. Can't go back on you. It's so great. Uh, graphic source is your source for production ready digital art and remote art staffing go to graphicsource.com and let them run your art department so you can focus on running your business um again i mean we're all super close with those guys so it's we have nice things to say and things that we can't talk about publicly (laughs) but vegas great people i know (laughs) people i'm i'm excited for long beach me too um, i'm so jacked nick just texted me the other day me and nick kind of have this little weird connection with uh fbm bike company and he texted me a picture of his bike and i'm jealous yeah. because he has one that i want and i don't have um but love you nick lucas awesome. the whole team heck yeah good people uh choosing the right emulsion for your shop is complicated and that's why we love chromaline Go to chromaline.com to watch Kev's vids or contact him on Instagram at the emulsion guru and get the answers you need. Again, Kevin, fucking thank you awesome, for dude. everything that you do. Uh, I was talking to Bill this morning about a job that we're doing. Uh, and there was like the smallest, tiniest detail in the design that we didn't even know was there, but came out because of the laser. So pretty stoked that on crazy? that. Dude, it's both stuff you want to keep. And sometimes you got to redo how you do art because there's stuff yeah. there that you didn't know was there. Well, that was the thing. And I talked about this in like an episode or two ago, I think, where yeah. you go from film to like an eye image and you're like, oh, my yep. God, like there's so much detail that we didn't have before. And then you go from that to laser and all this other stuff. And again, it's like another jump where you're like, I didn't even know this existed. Exactly. Like, like you do the saps, you do the whole thing, you blow it out. Yeah. You're like, yeah, this is definitely what it's supposed to look like. But you're not realizing that there's dots that aren't blowing out that exactly you didn't even see or could yep. fathom them being there. And now you can get it to where they are, you know, exposing and all this other stuff. And then they come out and like, again, there was just like this weird fucking like Viking structure guy. And at his feet was flames. But in the flames, apparently there were faces that we never saw before. Isn't and the last crazy? time we printed this, we printed it on the eye image. Yeah. And we, again, just printed it with laser. And we were like all these like half tones of faces in these flames that we didn't even That's notice so were there cool. the first time. Yeah. And so I guess like um, Bill was sending pictures to Kevin. And it was just like basically awesome. just like thank yous. So, yeah, um, it was great. Uh, if you're not using DTF for screen print transfers in your shop, you're doing it wrong. We have partnered with Howard Custom Transfers to get you the transfer you need fast. Check them out at howardct.com. Again, I can't fucking say thank you to Candy enough. She's like Sound killing it right man. now yeah. with. I We have probably just got an hour ago delivered like like 8000 tags. Dude, that were all pre-cut. <laughs> pre-sorted ready to go all we got to do is slide in a po and yeah an image and send it out to them to press and yeah she's been on the ball with that stuff and it's funny the whole team there is awesome i love i love howard we have i feel like we've just been talking about nothing but like i mean we talk about a lot of things but we've been talking a lot about dtf and the mild boys yeah and it's been uh a hot ticket (laughs) i know (laughs) and did you see scott's fans that he posted last night <laughs> yes you signed an nda I'm just kidding. yeah yeah it's, uh, <laughs> can't talk about it <laughs> can't talk about it no it's that. uh smooth move mm-hmm. he's the king well it's funny that he's 
King Screen, but he is King Screen. He is the king of. The he figures film, out. Yeah. He's he figures out how to do transfers quicker and better than everyone. Mm-hmm. He's the guy. How's New York tea? I took a break on it for a while. I I noticed. That's why I'm asking. Um, I just I had a lot going on and like yeah, I don't know, just trying to figure stuff out and then. Um, I just kind of was like, I don't have time to fuck around with this right now. I have like five designs ready to go. I just, and I also have ordered the shirts. Everything's out there. I just need to. I feel like a Christmas, like, uh, what do you call them? Uh, the problem. You call them the boogeyman. You call it, what do you guys call them out there? Krampus. Bigfoot. Krampus. Oh, Bigfoot. No, not yeah. Krampus. We got Bigfoots out there, man. Yeah. yeah. Like a Christmas Bigfoot. Well, the problem is, is that with this stuff, you can't be in the moment to a degree because if you're like oh i want to do a halloween design or i want to do a christmas design or i want to do something that's holiday like if it's not just like a generic like fun design yeah you should be doing it like four months in advance yeah like i i had a halloween one that was awesome and i was like by the time i got it done and shirts ordered and ready and like i had room on the schedule to put it two in, days it was like yeah. two weeks before halloween yeah yeah and i was like there's no point in putting this up because by no. the time we get it printed and, and shipped it's gonna be like gone a week yeah. of the week of halloween it's i get it not gonna work so i don't know i i'm ready for 2024 i'm just gonna start it back up and push it on instagram and see what happens again for me it was just like a fun project to be like i know yeah yeah for sure. This is something to do, but which is also funny too, because there's um there's another New York thing that I stumbled across that I see now they're doing like a shirt of the month and they're like very like they weren't in my territory, like in my niche of like weird shit like aliens and Sasquatch and all yeah, that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And their their tea of the month shirts for the last two months because it's they've only done it twice are like aliens and Sasquatch and all this other stuff. So I'm like, dude, it's like these motherfuckers. That's like straight up state New York stuff too. Yeah. Like that's, you know, the city and the island. That's, they don't do aliens and Sasquatch. No, no. It's up here in the woods where we have weird shit. Exactly. All right. So he's here. Um, Our guest today is Mitch Hyman from Perrin Sportswear. And he's, he's, in Michigan, I think, right? He is. He's in Grand Rapids. And you've been there, right? Yeah, it's my uh I've been there. My cabin's only about 45 minutes north of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're right there. Okay, well, let's let Mitch in. What's up, buddy? Hey, how are you? How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's uh you know, winter is here, which is <laughs> not not my favorite time of year, but oh, I'm yeah. probably experiencing the same thing. So did you guys get a bunch of snow yesterday? We did. We've, we've had it kind of on and off since Sunday. It's been snowing and blowing and snowing and blowing. And so, yeah. 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 I did a road trip yesterday uh, to a coffee, like a kind of a growing coffee company that is a customer of ours. And it's like a two hour drive north. And I didn't realize that they were supposed to get like basically like 10 inches of snow yesterday. Oh, no. So I got up there and it was like beautiful sunny day, you know, upstate New York drive, cold, but whatever. Get there, do the meeting, and then you can see the sky where it's like half beautiful and then half like <laughs> yeah. black. And I'm like, I need to get out of here. And like <laughs> as I was driving to Syracuse, it was followed me. And then when I got to Syracuse, it was just dumping. And oh, it man. was it was and then I wanted to go to the mall and I ended up watching a movie and all this other stuff. And I was like, I hope to God it's done snowing by the time I leave here because I'm screwed if not. So, um, yeah, 
so how's things at Perrin right now? Are you guys swamped? Is it your bit? Do you, you kind of are busier in the winter, right? Or does it no, actually, not have a busy season or a slow season? You know, it really kind of depends. We've, we've got a really diverse customer base. So, um, the, but there are still our times where we're busier. Some summer months are still our busiest months, yeah. uh, just for the amount of, uh, partners that we have that are busy. Um, but for example, right now we're actually working on, um, some reorders after cyber Monday for our e-com accounts. Yeah. So we're doing some replenishment there. We're doing some, uh, 2024 new program, uh, resets for the airport. So, you know, this week's a pretty big week. Um, but overall it's, it's quieter, you know, when we're in, uh, November, December, January, February, yeah. than the rest of the year. So for the people that don't know, like you guys are big into like the resorts and the airports and all that other stuff. Um, that's why I was asking too, though, is like, isn't now like kind of peak busy travel season for people. And wouldn't that be when you sell the most items in that kind of market? Well, for some of our airports, absolutely. They're on fire. Um, yeah. But, you know, right now uh, it's a little early for like some of the theme parks like SeaWorld and Busch Gardens. So yeah. they're, they haven't really come into season yet. That'll happen after the first of the year. So it really just depends on, you know, what segment of our business we're talking about with that. Right. Right. But yeah, you know, we do, um, we, had, we work with both of the larger airport uh partners but definitely we do more with one than the other and you know so it just depends but yeah right so i kind of want to get i mean we've talked a bunch because we do the whole gildan thing together um mm -hmm. but i kind of want to get your whole how you started how you got into it story okay i don't yeah, know how well. deep you, how deep dive you want to go or how not deep you want to go but give me give me the gist okay well um I graduated uh, actually in graphic design. And so that was, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in design. And um, after getting out of, and that was from the University of Iowa. And so after, uh, after graduation, I went up to Minneapolis and was actually looking for work. And when I was there looking for work, I thought, okay, while I'm interviewing, I still need to do something. Um, you know, make some money and put food on the table, that sort of thing. So there was a place close by that actually had um, a sign up, a new store opening um, for evening and weekend hours. And it was actually a new sunglass store. And uh, I thought, okay, you know what? I can interview, look for things during the day. I can do something like that. You know, at night, it's just a few blocks away. Should be, should be great. So I, I go in, I interview uh, for a part-time job. And I ended up taking a position uh, managing the store. So here I am with a degree in graphic design and I'm selling sunglasses. So they're but, pulling, they're pulling randos <laughs> off the street and giving a manager position. For the sunglasses. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, it sounded really good because they had 30 stores and they're like, you know what? We're going to fly out to Breckenridge. You're going to, we're going to put you up in a house. You're going to be there for 30 days. You're going to learn all about the sunglass business ski when I'm not, you know, uh, learning about nice. uh, sales. So I thought at that point in time, I thought that sounds like a pretty good gig. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I started with that, um, got into other sales, ended up on the East coast with the same 
company uh, in Lake Placid, New York, where they actually had uh, shirt stores that were actually selling the kind of stuff that that we're all printing right now. And so I ended up uh, running four stores in Lake Placid, two in Stowe, Vermont, and one in North Conway, New Hampshire. This is all still for the sunglass thing? Yep, yep. So um, same group, but what I did is I and I was going out there um, and giving uh, the managers at the time uh, sunglass seminars. So I was um, teaching them how to sell sunglasses. Um, and in doing that, really found that I liked the area, um, the bigger stores, more opportunity for me uh, doing more than just sunglasses. And so I, I took on a position there as um managing and buying for those stores. Can I ask you a Um, dumb question? Sure. How do you teach someone how to sell sunglasses? Isn't it just like, it's sunny out, I need sunglasses? No, it's like, you know, what's the lens for? Um, What kind, you know, different different frames are going to fit different faces different lenses are going to perform differently you've got polarized you've got gradient you've got uh um, light sensitive you know you've got different lens materials you know you name it i mean there's all sorts of information that goes along with um sunglasses you know where are you going to be wearing them light increases in intensity four percent every thousand feet you know how dark of a lens do you need yada 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 right that is so, so i mean it's 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 very interesting i don't know about yeah. you alex but it's, it's interesting to me because i guess i'm just a cheap ass and like you know those like giveaway sunglasses like the fucking whatever they are like oh yeah, 10 cent sunglasses. yeah, yeah. those are what i wear normally okay okay <laughs> i'm just saying like i don't know anything about them i put them on and like i feel better looking into the sun than i do without yeah. them so yeah i've yeah. never yeah. went and bought like a like a fancy pair of sunglasses. Well, just think though, if those sunglasses don't have ultraviolet protection, then what you find is you just put something over your eyes, your pupil dilates now, or it doesn't constrict because it doesn't have to because of the brightness. And the only mechanism that your body has to reduce the amount of UV light that uh, would be exposed to your retina has just been taken away by those cheap sunglasses. <laughs> I want to clap so badly Everything right now. Everything you never needed yeah, to know. <laughs> he just he just sold me a pair of sunglasses. That's now it. I feel like I have to go buy sunglasses. You do. Mm-hmm. So you were good at that, by the way. Good job. Yeah, yeah. So that was um, <laughs> that's awesome. So I ended up. Yeah, I, I did that for a while, um, and um, so when you're in the mountains, everybody knows. Um, about mud season and mud season is the time when you know what the the uh ski hill shut down in this case it was whiteface in lake placid and um nothing has started up for the summer yet so there's not a lot going on so i had an opportunity to go back to minnesota where the owner of of these stores lived and he had decided that he was going to start repping uh, independent sales rep uh, in the screen printed apparel business. And so I went back and helped him rep for a month and found out that I really loved it. Liked it a lot more than I did the retail side of things. And so, and, um, of course being a buyer, I had a real good understanding of what, you know, these accounts were looking for because it was all the same things that I had been looking for as a buyer. So it was a real natural, easy transition for me to get to the other side of the business. Um, I was a sub rep for a while, and then I was a, a, a rep, had 
the former owner as a partner. And then I ended up going out on my own. Um, and from there, one of the lines that I was carrying was Perrin. And Perrin did very well for me. And I got more and more involved. And, and they were pretty new at the time and really just in airports. And so um, when I would ask for moose, icons, images, different things, you know, from my area, they really weren't sure exactly what I needed or what I wanted. And so I started flying over to Perrin and actually help them develop their line for all areas of the country because they were just, they were really just into airports at the time. Mm -hmm. So I started flying back and forth. Uh, from there, I got more involved, um, became sales manager, moved to Michigan. And then uh, in 2007, uh, we actually purchased the company from the former owner uh, by way of an ESOP, which is an employee stock ownership plan. Mm -hmm. yep. So I became president in 2007 and here we are. So you did that right off the bat. Like that was the transition of you taking over was that you were going to do the employee owned thing. Um, yeah. So we looked at um, the owner and myself and the accountant at the time looked at different um, opportunities for him to get out of the business. He'd been screen printing for a long time and he was just done. And, uh, uh, but he wanted to, really make sure that he kept a lot of the longer term employees that he'd worked with at Perrin as well as other places before he started Perrin Sportswear. And so um, one of the ways and mechanisms to do that was the ESOP. You know, you sell the company to, you know, an investment group and they're going to strip it, downsize it, lean and mean and sell it in five to seven years. And he didn't want that. So, right. um, so this was his way of kind of maintaining that legacy. And you, because me and Alex were talking about this before you came on, but like, yeah. what does that actually, what does that mean? And what, how do you go about doing something like that? Like, what's the benefit of doing that over just like a model of you owning it and they're just your employees? And did he, so, yeah, go ahead. That's all right. I was just, you know, I was just wondering if he did, you know, a hundred percent of it right away. If it was, you know, 51%. I mean, I have so many questions on how that was. Structured. Yeah. Yeah. So longer term employees, um, we're immediately a hundred percent vested. Um, and if you, uh, uh, if you were a startup today, there's a, there's a vesting period, um, which, uh, you're fully vested after your sixth year. So it's kind of one of those year 20%, 40%, 60%, 80%, 100%. So, um, type deal. So, um, basically what an ESOP does is it, it's a, it allows employees to buy the company, um, uh, without having to have that typical and historical financial capital. It works differently through an ESOP trust, which is actually funded from a bank. And then we actually take that money, pay it off, and then pay back the trust. Um, and then once we did that, I think we paid it off and we did quite well. I think it was just five years where, when we paid that off. And then um, during that time, um, also what an ESOP does, since this employee owned is you actually own stock in the company. Um, and, um, in our case, um, you know, you get a percentage of stock based on, you know, what you, your, what your salary is there. Um, it gets capped after a while. So, um, but so you're going to get stock allotted to you. Um, um, that is just, um, something that is awarded through the ESOP. 
um, based on the stock performance and based on the, the company contribution, then is how you are going to determine that value of that stock. So do they so, just get, they just get, as the company grows, they're getting, they're getting more and chunks? more stock. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you, they, they say that, um, uh, I think some of the most recent data is we're looking at ESOPs just on the whole in the U S that the average ESOP stockholder has around $130,000 in their account. Um, sure. so we, with our math, the way we've looked at it, um, conservatively, let's say you were to start, uh, uh, at Perrin today and after 20 years and just working, uh, not just working, but working at, at a, an hourly rate at an entry level position, sure. you work here for 20 years. Um, with our growth, you're going to have at least, uh, $500,000 in that account without having to contribute a penny. So, so at some point they can just cash out or how does that work? So, yeah. So if, if they leave, um, there, there's a, uh, waiting period of up to, um, five years, um, before they, um, um, they can receive that, that money. We can hold off up to five years, five years if we want to. Now we don't, we actually pay out the following year that someone, um, um, leaves the company. So we're going to distribute that, those, those distributions. Um, the, um, and then at 55, you can actually start to diversify like 25% of those funds. If you want to start putting them somewhere else, you can. Oh, cool. So. Did you have but, any more questions on that, Alex? Or was that something you've ever looked no, into just, doing? It was, your stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's a, I think, you know, just in general, there was a, a lot of the boomer generation had started a lot of companies after World War II. And at some point, some somewhere around that year, I think, uh, ESOPs would become a great option for them because, you know, if you don't have an exit strategy, it's a perfect one for long-term employees. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a way that, um, they feel invested, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the company, you know, the thing about an ESOP is you have to keep promoting it and reminding people that everything they do every day is going right, not yeah. only to the bottom line, but their bottom line with that. So that's, that's really important when you, um, you are an ESOP is that you're continually promoting that fact. And when you did it in the beginning, did, was it the five year or six year mark that every, it was that the vested a hundred percent up upfront deal or did that, did you stagger that over time? Because he said the long-term employees got a hundred percent vested up front. Is that based on that six year mark that you started with? Um, so they got it right away. So they yeah. got a hundred percent of the contributions yeah. immediately. Everyone else, you know, has had to go through the vesting period for that piece with it. So, but it's pretty cool. I mean, since 2007, we've paid out, um, distributions from stock of over $28 million. Unreal. That's awesome. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's just so cool. I love it. I feel like a lot of this episode is going to be this, but, um, (laughs) one thing that we were talking about before, and again, me and Alex have, talked on the phone personally just about like employees and retention and hiring and how it's a nightmare right now and everything like that. Do you feel like this is a good way to keep people like invested in you? Like they're not just willy nilly or leaving or your employee retention. Is it like they're more invested for sure? Yeah. they're not going it helps. 
it helps. It also what we have the option of um, doing annual um, distributions, and so um, that's really important. If 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 the stock is is doing well, the company's performing well, um, then I'm going to look at the annual ESOP meeting doing a, a distribution of cash. So I'll I'll say I'll take three hundred thousand dollars and say, okay, we're going to divvy that up based on everyone's current stock allocation. And sure. so when you do that, um, and we've done it most years, um, but not every year. Um, yeah. so, um, with that, that really gets one, the people that, you know, are in the program excited, you know, yeah. at, at those meetings, I mean, we're giving away checks that are, you know, 12,000, 5,000, you know, sure. to, to people that, you know, are working the floor, you know, they, they just put their time in, you know, and so that's beneficial. Um, and then it's also, um, um, it's beneficial after you're vested early on, you know, everyone is like, okay, yeah, it's great, but I still need to put food on the table and I still have my bills to pay. And so, um, you know, it's once you've been here a while and you see that grow, you know, then it's, then it helps still. And, and, and yeah. but if you've got people in the industry and they know they want to stay in this industry and that's just another benefit that we offer, yeah. then yeah, there's, it, it helps. So you've got to keep them interested for like six years before you can kind of see like, okay, this is a lifer now. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. I feel like we talked where here at my shop where it kind of seems, we call it like the printer's curse where basically like if you keep someone like five, six years, they go from the point of being like super invested to kind of like bored. And then like now they're like grumpy printers where they're the best. Mm -hmm. Anybody who comes in under them, doesn't know jack shit, like all this other stuff. <laughs> and then they mm -hmm. either become toxic or we have to put them in another position. So I'm wondering, mm -hmm. you're like, you're, you got it like structured to where at six years they're fully vested. And now it's like, well, they should play ball because they're technically like part of the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Piece of the pie, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, piece of the pie is a good way to put it. Yeah. You know, I think the, the other advantage that, that we have is because of the size of our company. Um, it's very easy for us to look at, at, at creating new positions, moving people into different departments and doing things that, you know, smaller shops can't do, you know, right. uh, we have a lot of success stories here. Um, we write some of our own software, you know, in this day and age in our business, you have to. And, yeah. and so um, the, our best, software developer actually started in separations and on second shift. And when I first started, um, I was putting in a lot of long, long days and long nights. And so about nine 30, I'd get up, kind of walk around, go out into the plant and go into the seps. And he was the only guy in there. So I always kind of felt like I needed to stop in and say hi to him, see what's going on kind of thing. And just yeah. by happenstance, I find out that, you know, he likes to write code. And, and, um, so it's, it's finding that kind of stuff and having the ability because of the size of our company that you can kind of put people, you know, where their passions lie, you know, yeah. and, and smaller shops don't have the ability to do that. And I, I think that really helps us with retention too. Yeah. yeah. Cause in a smaller shop, you're pulling someone from a department and then the hard part is you need to find a new person to put in that department now that you don't already have. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. which is the hardest mm-hmm. part. But you can kind of shuffle people, especially around. when entire departments in these smaller shops can be a singular person, right? right. I mean, it's that's a real. You say art point. department, but yeah, it's yeah. one dude. It's one guy exactly, <laughs> and it's like, you know, we have a lot of printers like that, and that's that's a tough thing to do. Whereas when you mm-hmm. have the ability to have entire departments filled with a team, it's a lot easier to yeah. diversify yeah. that. So, Mitch, when yeah. you took when you kind of took over with Perrin, what was the size of the company then? Uh, it was probably about 200 um, people, something like that. Now in, in the summer months, we'll be at 385. So, um, although, you know, we had, we had some growth. We've actually, as we have, you know, learned how to cross train better and we've learned um, to move information better through, you know, some of our software. We actually have fewer people in most departments, certainly in the office, because we've gotten more efficient, sure. you know, with technology um, that we actually are doing more with less in those areas. You know, when you get back in the production floor, it pretty much is what it is, although because we do a lot of VAS where we'll end up, you know, pad print in the neck label, we'll be doing folding, we'll be doing, you know, hanging in, in various things um, in value added services. A lot of times we have those, those teams kind of follow the work. So they might be in pad print getting that stuff. Like we just got some econ ecom stuff today. And um, when that hits the floor, it's all going to get pad printed um, then it goes actually into the, into screen print. And when it leaves screen print, those same people that were doing the pad print are going to be on the folders, you know, um, bagging and, and packaging that stuff for shipment. So they're so, kind of moving around. Yeah. Yeah. So I, a lot I, more of that. I feel like a, the squirrel thing right now where you're saying the topic and I'm like, fuck, I really want to talk about that topic, but I don't want to lose track of where we were. Yeah. But one thing I'm playing around with now at our shop is, what's the best way to do an internet label? Is it screen printing? Is it transfer? Is it pad print? Have you guys played around with that? Like you feel like pad print is the way to go or is it more a volume thing where pad print makes sense because you have to make the plates? It's, it's a volume thing for us more than anything. Um, you know, and because we've got so many different garments and, you know, like if we've got a neutral label garment, that has all the information in it, or it's got it sewn in somewhere else in the garment where all we have to do is, is do, do a print, you know, a reel to reel is nice. It's nice. It's clean. looks good. Um, but when you've got a, you can't use a reel to reel when you've got to look at care content and all the, of the different, you know, country of origin, RN, what have yep. you. So for us, you know, we used to screen print, but pad print is so much more economical. Um, you know, the one thing that, that we do have though, or we have two different size pad prints that we do. So we'll have a, a general size. We've got four machines that we do our t-shirts with, and then we've got two larger format machines where we actually do all of our fleece with so that it's legible. You can read it, you know, as you're trying to, <laughs> if you ever tried to pad print, you know, brush fleece on it's the inside. Yeah, yeah. So we use those, those machines for fleece with that. Well, nice and that the pad print too, is you don't have to run it through a dryer. It's done. It's yeah. done. It's fast. Yeah. Yeah. We can do, we can do 10,000 pad prints a day 
So, I mean, it's fast. It's awesome. Okay. I went on a sidetrack and uh, <laughs> um, you, go ahead. Do you guys do fulfillment out of your building? Like individual um, fulfillment or do you just do like restock for your partners? Yeah, we don't, we do not do it. Um, but we're, I shouldn't say that we're starting to do some of our own, um, uh, e-com sites, Shopify sites for some things that we're doing right now. And those are done individually. And, and actually the reason we do them is we've got, um, some product that's, uh, a lot of it's located within, um, the airports and, um, it's specific, a new brand that we developed and, um, it's doing very well, but once, you know, the customer leaves the airport, there's only like six cities you can find it in. Right. We're kind of being very careful about placement and, and keeping the brand integrity as we, as we sell it. Um, yep and uh, release it. So it's one of those things where, you know what, I kept getting so many emails that were like, Hey, where can I get it? Where can I get it? And so, and for a while, you know, it's, it's a, it's a brand called vacation land and it's really kind of a, uh, goes back to a simpler time memory, you know, share the memories. It's real retro kitschy type art, yeah. um, done on, on, uh, pigment dyes and some garments that we relabel as well as garments that we make. Um, but because of that is it's really harkens back to this, um, old family road trip type travel. Um, when people would ask about it, I'd say, Hey, what do you need? What size I'll send you something out. And then if you like it, send me a check and they'd be like, what? And so, <laughs> but I thought that's what it would be like back then. Right. So, yeah. so that's kind of how we did it. But I, I just, I kept getting inundated, um, as well as, you know, other people that were managing some of these requests that it's like, yeah, we got to just do it. We got to do a Shopify site just so that we can direct them there. And so we're not touching this all the time. So, yeah. so we're, we're doing it for that reason. Um, um, not necessarily just because we wanted to, to open up a Shopify site, because quite honestly, the last thing I want to do is be a competitor to my partners, you know, but actually, um, the nice thing is, is the first thing when they get there is we're going to refer them back to a place where they can get it outside of the airport. Um, and if that doesn't work yet, then they can order it from us and we'll do that. So sure. you said for that, you're manufacturing your own blanks. Um, some of them. Yeah. It depends on what it is. You know, we, we do, um, we do mainly our, our fleece or higher end garments. We'll make those, um, overseas i've got two two partners that do a nice job in pakistan with that so um i don't want to i don't want to poke at you and try to get like i don't know like trade secrets on that whole thing because i'm sure that's like a whole thing but like at what point do you make a decision of buying a finished blank or making your own like what's the i mean i'm sure it's price but like what's the ultimate benefit of you creating your own blanks um, getting something unique to sit with an assortment or something you can't get. If I, yeah. trust me, if I can buy it and not make it, I'm going to do it every time because, you know, sourcing product is a lot of work. I, I don't care what you say. It's a lot so, of work. So I, you would rather, you would rather buy a finished blank. Oh yeah. But you're doing it this way because there's a hole in the market that you need to fill to keep that customer. 
Or? Yeah. Like, like, you know, um, I mean, there, there's only so many, you know, uh, basic fleece products that a customer is going to buy or, uh, fashion products that they're going to buy. And, you know, some of those, if you go out and try and buy those, they're really expensive, you know? So when all of a sudden there's, there's a blank that I can make with all sorts of bells and whistles, um, for overseas for six seventy five to nine dollars. And if I go to try and buy it from a distributor, that thing's gonna be seventeen dollars, eighteen dollars. Well that's just priced my customer, you know, out of the market in a lot of cases. So right. so well, then it's gotta I'm, be a unique make way them. to sell a package too, right? I mean you can yeah. sell them a custom piece of yeah, you know, yeah. custom fleece, custom shirt, whatever it is. But how far ahead in their forecasting does that have to take place? Because I'm sure there's R and D with like, oh, we have to come up with this custom hoodie or whatever it is with all these mm -hmm. things. Like, how much back and forth is it from idea to finished product and ready to, for you guys to print and all that other stuff? Well, as far as if if it's usually we've got a product in mind, um, or you know the the manufacturer is going to send packages of things that are trending or they're doing well with. And then we'll take a look at that and say, okay, we like that, but we need to make it our own. Right. So we'll change the fabrication or change colors, change draw cords, whatever that might be. Um, and that, that to get that first product back is, is pretty quick. It's a couple of weeks. Um, from there, once you, um, you, seal the deal the fabric's going to get started um and um, um once colors are determined so then you're going to have dye you're going to have basically you know dye lots shades that are sent to you um of you know does this work and once you do color approval you're anywhere from 90 to 120 days with that so you have any good horror stories of things that you were like, this is a good idea. No. Um, oh, oh yeah. I got all kinds of them. I got one right now. <laughs> Give me one right now. I want to hear it. Right now we got, I got one where we thought it'd be really cool to change the color of our label from our uh, white satin that we always do to this blue. That's kind of the color of our logo parent sportswear. Yeah. Well, they did it on this lady's drop tail quarter zip, beautiful piece. Um, but the color didn't set in the label. So, and all around the collar, there's 6,000 garments that have bits of blue shades with it. <laughs> so, so, and of course, you know, we, we, um, we've sold some of it. So one, we're like, okay, let's find somebody commercially to clean these. We can't clean them ourselves. We tried cleaners. So then it's like, okay, well, let's, you know, we're not going to send this out to our customers. So we're looking at having it done. We're looking at having replacement product made and, and they'll work with you with that kind of stuff most of the time. But, you know, I know, I think back in 2010, um, I was on the do not sell list in Karachi for some stuff <laughs> because it was such junk. And I said, I'm not taking it and it went back and forth. And so, you know, they have their manufacturers guilds over there. And so I was on their There's just list a for fucking a while. poster in their <laughs> office. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Do not talk yeah, exactly. to me. And then you oh, come God. in a month later with a fake mustache on. <laughs> or or sunglasses. sunglasses. Yeah. Sunglasses. You gotta have sunglasses too. And sunglasses, right. Yeah. That makes so. sense. See, there's one thing like I'm a small fish when it comes to that, but I've always thought of like, it'd be really cool to manufacture like just a black t-shirt. 
mm-hmm. like of size fit, everything that I like, our label mm-hmm. in it, and just like all the bands, all the comic book places, all these like our number one by far is just like a black t-shirt. Mm-hmm. So I always thought about sure. that. Like, what does it take to just be like, I just want to order. I don't even know what a good number is. If it's like 10,000, 20,000 pieces of just like black stock, mm-hmm. like in your opinion from doing this, is it beneficial to be like, to, to do that? Or would you just be like, nah, dude, like just buy. A well, you know, it, it might, it, it might be beneficial from a standpoint of if you've got a customer that, you know, is definitely, you can fill that void and, and there's a need there you know, then, and it's, yeah, but I'm not increase. saying, I'm not saying one specific customer. I'm saying in general, say out of, say out of my whole bucket of customers, 60% of them are ordering black shirts all day long. I could just mm-hmm. pull from stock, be like, Oh, all these orders this week are all black, but pull it from do all they care of the black. Do they team. care about the cut? Most the of them are bands. They don't care at all. They just want a black yeah. shirt that works. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Then it's, you know, is that where you want to put your money, you know, and, right. and how fast can you turn it? You know, I mean, there's just a lot of things that are going to go into whether that's important, you know, um, what's it do for your margins, you know, can you, um, you know, can you get a better price for it because it's unique and they can't get it anywhere else? I mean, there's just a lot of factors with that, but mm. I just, over the years, if I can buy it, I'm not going to make it. So I'm just not. So, well, that's, that's good advice. I mean, someone who's better on the block, that's what I want to hear. Yeah, I exactly. Hear, hey, yeah. idiot, don't, don't even bother. Don't crush your cash flow buying 20,000 black t-shirts. He's telling me not to, but he's got fucking 10 million in stock in black tees. It's like, you don't want to do that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. So, all right, we got to step back. You bought the company. You did the employee thing. Mm -hmm. What's the the next step? Like, so you go from selling sunglasses to being like, oh, I'm going to take over a company that has 200 and some odd employees. Is that not daunting is that was that ultra stressful what was your first we did you just walk into a company that's running and now you just manage it or did you have to make some big changes um so you know there, there was working here and working as sales manager and working closely with the vice president um who really managed the front office and the art department and the owner who really managed production um it, there was a, we had a lot of good things going on. You know, I guess you could say, you know, the company had good bones, but there was a lot of things that I, I could see immediately that, um, there was opportunities to improve, you know, what we had going on. And one of the biggest things is, you know, we have these swinging doors, um, that are physical swinging doors that take you from the front office to the production area. And there was always this mentality. There's, you know, there's two companies depending on what side of the swinging door you're on. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I wanted to do is break down that barrier, that mindset of, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's production versus front office so that it was one company. And of course with the platform of the ESOP kind of gives you a, you know, the opportunity to do that. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I didn't, no, until I became president. Um, so like I, I just assumed we had purchasing department, you know, <laughs> I assumed when I started looking at what was going on and looking at the books and like, okay, so we've got all this inventory. We're, what classifications are you using for this? We don't use classifications. I'm like, we got 17,000 SKUs and you can't tell me what's active, what's discontinued, what should be promotional or what should be close out or like, wow. no. So here to answer your question, how did it go? 
three weeks after I took over as president, Dylan, I got shingles. There you go. No joke. No joke. So yeah, it was, distress. It, it was a little unnerving at first, you know, when you start, you know, looking, um, at all of the, uh, you know, the top secret information. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I, you know, good people very familiar with it. And, you know, I saw a lot of the way people were managed or mismanaged. So I, I really wasn't concerned about, um, you know, what we could do as a company or how I could help. Um, but it was certainly, um, it was a process because you've got a lot of people that, um, well, you know, people are resistant to change and, you know, and, and there's a lot of, of angst between the production and front office oh, and, and breaking those barriers down and getting that, you know, so, but I, you know, I did it with spending a lot of time, Getting okay. back on the floor, Mitch, you know, and tell us how, because <laughs> I would love to know that secret because I've been fighting that thing for forever. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that, that helped me, um, is as president and CEO, um, I come from a, a graphic design background and that is not typical in this industry. Most of the time, you know, it, uh, a president CEO is going to come from finance. So, um, and having that background made it pretty easy for me to get out onto the floor, talk to, talk to production. Um, we had a second shift at that time. And, uh, I remember, um, it was some of my business with, um, uh, Nickelodeon that we were doing, we were doing SpongeBob and, and we we're doing the big face and, you know, these guys would, <laughs> would be trying to run this on second shift and it's at nine 30, 10 o'clock at night and they're having issues. And I would go back there and say, okay, all right, just print me the yellow first. Let's start there. Let's look at this problem, print me the black, whatever, and, and troubleshoot with them and problem solve. And one of the things that, um, is important to me is to really understand all facets of our business. And so I spent a lot of time in all departments doing that. And I think that's crucial for anyone. If you want people to follow you, you have to know what they do, understand what they do, and then make decisions that impact their department as well as all the departments around them. And so I think being able to contribute there was a big part of getting people to follow me. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's beneficial to, and this is just like a spitball. And we, um, Tony at Tiny Fish kind of does this where I don't know if he necessarily does this with office staff or if it's just production, but the rotation thing we kind of talked about before where you said people move around. Do you think it would mm-hmm. be beneficial for every person in the office to take a week, a month, whatever it is, to just put them in production and just be like, work in their shoes? That way, you know, A, how to sell things or like if this is printable or these are the issues or the whatever, or just to kind of get them to be friendly and on and on the same page and not just like, these are office people. These are production people. We've, we've done that. Um, not so much with, um, we've done that within the department. So within production, we've had someone who managed the screen room actually go down and do pad print. So much. So we've, we've done some of the, the leadership shifting with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will move people, but we, we haven't physically taken someone who enters orders in the front and say, you're going to work in another department in production per se, but we have had them shadow. 
where they'll be down there and they will actually spend two days you know, in a department watching them to understand that. What does that mean for what I put for on the work order kind of thing? Um, but i tell you what was really one of the cool things about the pandemic is, um, you know, we, um, um, when we opened back up, um, you know, after being closed for two months, um, we were just inundated with work. And um, most everyone came back um, and I kept people on the payroll through the pandemic. Um, but, um, some of the, the third shift people did not, some people just didn't want to come back to work. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure, yeah. you know, we all know that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so well, the government was paying too well for a little while. Uh, exactly. Um, so what we found we had to do is it was all hands on deck and we'd have, you know, merchandisers back on a folding machine and we'd have, you know, artists back there ticketing just to get orders out. And, you know, that was really, um, that was a great team building experience and they loved it, you know, and, and people from front office that were doing jobs back there, they really enjoyed it and, and yeah. felt like, you know, you know, more of a 360 view of what the company looks like. And they were a part of that. So yeah. that was one of the good things that came out of the pandemic for us. How do That's you awesome. manage uh, like a production schedule with multiple shifts and all these machines and everything like that? Do you have like a, I don't want to say this to knock anybody down, but is there like an A team, a B team, C team where you're like, let's do these important jobs during the day. And then like, yeah, B team who's here at night, a little sleepy can handle the <laughs> one colors or how, how do you, how do you break that down and how do you manage a day-to-day -day schedule? Okay. So there is some of that that goes on for sure. Um, you know, we have, um, um, we have in screen print, we run two shifts. We run a first shift and a third shift. Um, and third shift, uh, we used to run second. Uh, we have run three shifts um, at times, but um, we find that third shift attracts, it's, it's a better shift for families because you're there when the kids, you know, get up, you're there when they come home from school. And, you know, that's, that's a better family friendly shift. Um, second shift tends to be a lot of the night owls that kind of thing so we do have all three shifts for embroidery embroidery we run five days a week 24 hours a day um, and so there we um uh, we do look at the work that we limit the work on embroidery um it's the smallest shift um uh between the three and so they focus on certain certain product and yeah same thing for screen print on third um we've got a good crew there so they can they can manage just about anything that we throw at them and they're wonderful for hot market because that gives us the ability to get that jump you know yeah. uh, right out of the gate and so, they're already used to that time frame they're used to that yeah, yeah. so um so it's um we we look at it a little bit dylan it, it, with that but we don't have to do it too much so yeah, was, too much. what was the reasoning for skipping second shift um, well, right now in screen print, we don't have the need for a second shift, you know? So it's just, I mean, um, business is, is not at a point where I would consider doing a second shift. But you're doing so, first shift and third shift. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, <laughs> most people prefer third over second. Yeah. I would agree. At least that was our experience. No, so. I agree. I because it's, it's like uh, weirdly in the middle of the day. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you get a lot of, um, I mean, I don't want to, you know, profile, but you get a lot of younger, you know, single people on second shift because they like to go out afterwards. You know, they don't have family, so they're not worried if they're coming in at two, uh, three o'clock and missing the kids home from school. I mean, it's just, it's, it's that, you know, lifestyle that you just typically work in a second. How hard is it to find management for those shifts? Um, it's hard. Yeah. You know, this year we, we just completed a year long, um, uh, leadership course that, uh, was, it was two hours, one week, four hours, the other week for, um, anyone that was in a leadership role or we thought would want to be in a leadership role, you know, um, uh, just to help them with, um, learning some of those skill sets, you know, how it is, you get people that are, they do a great job. They kind of rise up because of their skill set. Um, they've got that technical ability, but they may not have they the experience, manage. the experience yeah, of it. Yeah. 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 So that was a, well, I'm kind of looking forward to getting, you know, a, a summary of that, but it was, a. It was front office, back office. You know, again, we took leaders between production and office and mixed them up together within their team groups. And that went on from, um, oh gosh, I'm going to say the end of the first quarter just finished two weeks ago. So is that something that you guys created or is that like a third party um, thing that you send? It's a third party thing that we actually sent, um, two people to, and they learned it and it was kind of, so it's kind of a train the trainer program. Right. So, yeah. um, we had, uh, our HR manager as well as someone else in production that went through the courses. And then when they were done, they were the ones that implemented the program on site here. So is it like generic manager train? Not, I mean, not, not super generic, but is it, is it focused on the screen printing market or the, you know, the production or is it just, it just leader, in general? Just leadership, communication, you know, engagement. There's all sorts of different, you know, uh, topics throughout the curriculum there. It's, it's called DDI, um, but there's a lot of them out there. DDI is, a, is kind of a global leader and that sort of thing. So what do you feel like is the biggest takeaway from doing something like that? Do you feel like it's beneficial? I know you're a large company and it's one of those things yeah. like you kind of want to do, but like, even if you're a smaller shop, do you feel like that's something that's beneficial that some people should look into or you have to be um, to a certain scale to even bother? I, th I think it's a matter of how many people that you're, you're really wanting to train. I mean, there's, there's obviously smaller individual, uh, options. If you're a smaller shop, hopefully you or, you know, some of your, your management should be mentoring, you know, through the whole process with that. But, yeah. um, I think it's one of those things though, that's difficult for me is, you know, like I was into art and music and I was like, you know, what sounds like a good career is screen printing. And then you just kind of sure. like grow with it as it goes. And it is what it is. And, I literally had this discussion today with a newer employee where I was just like, I'll be honest with you. I am fucking horrible at confrontation. And I'm just going <laughs> to tell you right now, like if you start slacking off or not being great, I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to bring you in here. I'm just going to lose respect for you. And I'm probably just going to let you go at some point. Like I'm not going to be like, Oh, you get to work or stop talking and blah, blah. I'm just going to mm -hmm. like one day be like, you don't, you're not a good fit here anymore. So like, mm -hmm. and that sucks. Like I'm not, I don't ever say that I'm a great manager of people and 
luckily I have Bill who was like trained in management and he ran stores and all this other stuff. And when he decided to take over like his production manager and he was like, I will gladly hire fire, do any of that. I was like, praise Jesus, because <laughs> I don't ever want to do that ever. I would rather light myself on fire than fire somebody. Yeah. So I think constructive conversations are hard to have sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And, well, they, they can be in the heat of the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like anybody you talk to about their performance or their whatever, they're never like, you know what? I see your point. They're always just like, it's excuse after excuse or like, this is why I did this and whatever. And it's just like, I just, I just yeah. want you to be an adult. Like, can you just like. Well, we always, we always, uh, I always ask the question when we encounter those situations and everyone does is, do they understand the expectation? Did we make that clear? First and foremost, I mean, did we do a good job of setting that expectation with the work, with the professionalism, with whatever, um, you know, how did we do as leaders? And once we do that, I think it, and, and we're sure we've done that. Um, I mean, I think it makes some of those situations easier down the road. Yeah. And the thing that, that, um, I always um, say is make sure that if you let anyone go, there's not a surprise. There's no deer in the headlights. Okay. Um, anyone that, um, because you know what people really, in my other thing I say is people really don't get fired. They work themselves out of a job, exactly. but anyone they know it, they know it's coming. Um, yeah. So as long as they know, you know what, um, then, we all should be able to sleep at night because you don't, you never get really feel good about it. You, no. you know, Dylan, maybe there's someone you feel good about it at some point in time because I, it just had, you've had it with them. But um, I feel but, like it's just that I'm naturally like a people pleaser and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm empathetic to people's situations where, you know, they're kind of being a shitty employee and I'm giving them like every option to fix it or help or just do anything I can. And then it comes to the point where you're just like, this just isn't working. Like I can't yeah. do any more for you. And it's as a business, it doesn't make sense to keep you. So like, I kind of look at them like, what do you want me to do? Like I literally tried everything to like make mm -hmm. this work. So we, we contract with ADP and they gave us a whole like pit form you have to follow. And mm -hmm. if I, yep. I have found that to be wildly helpful because generally it, like you said earlier, the expectations are set. And then if they don't meet all of these performance indexes, then, I mean, it's, it's probably not a large shocker when you have to sit down and have that conversation. Yeah, I agree. I, um, we, we have a verbal warning. We have a written warning, a second written warning. And after that, it can be third. It can be, it could be. Mitch, I want to see you fucking like kick a door in and be like, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want this first warning, second warning bullshit. I want to see you kick it in and be like, oh. get your shit and get out. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, mm. you know, as you get older, you start to mellow a little bit, Dylan. So it's. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, waiting. I'm waiting for that. So. The My funny worst? thing is I've talked to some people and they're like, oh, just hire it out. Like hire an HR firm thing or something. Cause I, I, I'm not, I don't want to hire like an HR specific person here. They would sit around doing nothing most of the time. But like, yeah. I always thought that would be funny to like have me 
dressed and in my office the way I am. And then I sit down like some lady named Susan in like a blazer. And I'm just <laughs> like, uh, hey, uh, you're going to talk to Susan now? And it's like, you know what I mean? It's like super obvious. Like it's, what's happening. It's like the office space movie when they hire the consultants and they bring yeah. them in. And yeah. It's like, yeah. it's like, obviously this is what's happening. And you're just too much of a Nance to, to do it yourself. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you I know hate it. But the thing is when you've got that employee, that's not performing or not listening, whatever it is that they're doing, you know, it's not fair to everyone else that's there. That's, that's, mm. I always keep that in context too. It's like, you know, Absolutely. we, we have a responsibility to the employees that are doing it right and doing yep. a good job that, that this, this, this other person can't be with the company longer. Yeah. You have to keep so. the culture going. I mean, if mm-hmm. it's, you can't mm-hmm. let the one toxic person ruin what you have going on. Yeah, absolutely. The best part about it too is is that you feel bad, but it's also the weight lift that you feel the next day when that person's gone and everyone oh, shows yeah. up to work and they're stoked <laughs> that like yeah. that dark cloud isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it's like, what took us so long, right? Yeah, it's always. I've had a couple of those. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, Alex, so you're kind of a three, different thing from me because you're looking for just straight manufacturing people. Like, what's yeah, been your I mean, struggle with hiring lately? Uh, so, we're still growing, right? We're two years into this as far as – so, the, the chemical company's 43 years old, right? But our equipment manufacturing company is only two years old. And we're in the phase of, I guess, having trouble as we grow rapidly – creating enough trainers to train new employees. And we're having a lot of fallout because of that. One, I don't know if we're doing a good enough job training because some of the trainers haven't been there long enough to do that. Or I I feel like that's just going to be hard with rapid growth. You know what I mean? It's not like a trickle effect over over a period of time. You're like, hey, we have a product and everybody knows who you are and everyone wants to buy that product all of a sudden. And you're like, oh shit, we actually have to make these. I mean, they're great problems to have. And we hit and our orders are booked out for months and months. I mean, we're booked it through March of next year already, but it's, it's. And then there's always a question of scale of where do you, what's the right level to get to, to not outpace. Cause you don't mm-hmm. want to let anyone go. Right. So five months from now, you don't, you have to get to that level. And obviously there's going to be turnover. So you always have to have a few extra people in each department, but I don't know. We're kind of in that struggle of finding our level, I guess, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, train training. It's, you know, you have some guys that'll show up one day and they say, Hey, it's not for me. And that's okay. I have no problem with that. Um, but it eats, it eats a lot of time of the managers who do that training when they need to be managing some of the staff operating on the floor as well. And I don't know, it's the, it's a conundrum for us. Do you guys have like a, a specific training staff when you onboard people or how do you guys handle that? Yeah, we do. I mean, it's, um, uh, we're going to have, um, well, we make sure we don't start someone in a, in a position that's, you know, going to be daunting, um, that is yeah. highly technical or whatnot. So sure. we're, we're really going to start people off with, um, you know, you're not going to start off as an operator, you know, 
uh, <laughs> on an auto unless you've got experience. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to start off on part of the three-person team, and you're probably going to be at the end of the dryer to start. Yeah. And then you might, you know, you might be an unloader, you know. And then, you know, if that's where you want to go, we'll we'll figure out the roadmap to get you there, you know. Yeah. But um, but I think you're right when it comes to if we have people that we lose early on, usually it's because they we didn't do a good job of training them. They're not, they don't even know what they're, how they're supposed to be engaged on the floor and they quickly lose interest with that. So, um, but we, we, yeah. you know, we break off our, our screen print production, which is one of our larger areas. Uh, we have zone leaders as well. So right. not only are you going to have a, an operator who is, uh, is the team lead, but you'll have a zone leader over them and then you'll have uh, a floor manager over them. And so we try and be on the, have people on the floor as much as possible, no matter where the department is so that, you know, they are there to uh, make sure that they're assisting. You know, we also, I mean, I, I really, and I know this sounds crazy, but I look at the numbers and I look at, you know, our throughput. Um, but I really try not to stress that with the leadership on the floor. I'm, I'm more concerned about, you know, the quality and the numbers will come. They'll always come when you get there. So, um, you know, where, so I think it's, it's tough when they're worried about having an IR, they're worried about, you know, what they're getting, you know, off the dryer through the course of the day. And yeah. so we, we try and minimize that as much as possible. Oh, and that, that's a really good topic um, is how do you, manage that because i've always had that problem too and again where i'm kind of like a lax boss in my opinion um where i don't i'm never out in the shop being like come on guys hurry up like let's get this shit done let's get these jobs done but i feel like production and management always have this stress of like i gotta get these done i gotta get these done even though there is no overhead you know like hurry up get these done management it's just like i feel like production in general just gets this thing where they they feel like there's stuff stress when there isn't do you have that necessarily where it's just agreed that they do and i it's like no one said this has to get done today guys kind i, of I thing, just right? don't get it like i really it, i don't understand well you know we do um we do on monday mornings i do a, um, a production management meeting where um i meet with all the departments in production um and we look at the the work for the week and that's part of what I do during that week when I say, okay, hey, we've got, you know, 17,000, you know, that is on for, you know, Thursday, plus we're adding another, whatever it is, 10,000 in for Friday, you know, um, but listen, some of this doesn't have to get done. We're good until next Monday or Tuesday or whatever that is. It's, it's really important yeah. that you communicate that kind of thing. And then we do startup meetings in every department in production every morning. So every morning, you know, and it's always the same, you know, it's safety, quality, and then it's units. Okay. It's always, and that gets repeated every day, all day. What, um, are, you, what are you repeating with safety every day? Um, just it's safety first, you know, slow down on the high lows. I mean, you know, watch what you're doing. Yeah. Um, you don't need to step in and, and grab a garment when the needle's still moving, you know, I mean, slow it down, you know, kind of thing. It's, um, so, oh yeah, there's, I mean, 
Let a wrinkled shirt go, man. 225,000 square feet. People aren't always paying attention with all the stuff going on. So, um, so, um, but I think setting that expectation and reminding them so they know what they do need to focus on and not helps. But I agree. I think it's just part of the the nature of production that they just, I got to get it done. I got to get done. Like, well, you know, you don't, you can stop and ask the question, you know? So well, I think that's the it's reason why I asked this is because yeah. we were talking about scheduling this morning and also that exact thing of like the stress that comes with it, even though there's there's no reason for the stress. And it's mm-hmm. like, OK, like, how do we build out the schedule? Do we do it exactly based on these are the amount of garments we can get done in this time frame? Or do you look at it, too, of like. All right. So let me give you a scenario because it's going to be easier. Like, I want to know what you would do, Mitch. So. Right now, our calendar is stacked up of just like jobs that come in. I've never really based things on actual time. I just look at the day and I'm like, I think this press can do this. I think this press could do this comfortably. um, And this press can do this, whatever. Um, But the discussion was from art department was, I really want to start basing things down, down on exact time of like, okay, well, this job should take a day and a half or whatever it is. And let's plot that on the schedule as this. But my knowing from just 15 years of doing this is we always think it's going to take this long, but nine times out of 10, we do it faster than we think we're going to do it in. So my argument is I don't want to say that this job is going to take two days and put it on a schedule for two days when we could probably get it done in a day and a quarter, maybe, or whatever it is. Because mm-hmm. my fear is that production is going to look at that and be like, well, we've got two days to get it done. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to take them two days. And you know there, what I'm and saying? And for me, it's like in the office to too. It's like you have, you might have three hours worth of emails, but what they do is they stretch it to an eight hour day and it's, oh, I did my inbox all day. And then it's kind of, it's like way more lax, but it's like, in reality, if I put them more chaotic on the schedule, of these are the jobs I think you should get done today, then they're going to be like, all right, well, in my mind, there's this job plus two other jobs on today. When in reality, they might do the one job and then the two jobs will get dragged to the next day that they didn't get done. But at least they're in their face of like, you could potentially do these today. So that was my argument with them. And we didn't really come to a conclusion. I just said like, we'll think about it. We'll figure out a better solution. What would you do? Are you more based on time tracking? Yeah, we schedule to what, um, historically we can get done. So, you know, if we can do, uh, if we're going to be running 14 machines that day, I'm going to look, we're going to look at, you know, how many setups we historically get done. And then we're going to schedule to that. Now, if they, if they pull ahead, great. If they fall behind, great. And you can look at it and say, okay, well, we know we've got, you know, jobs coming up for, you know, Skittles, and Sesame Street, which are high color, they're going to take longer, settings are longer. We know that we're going to probably um, have to catch up later in the week with something. But we we stick to a schedule of what we can get done based on our average screen counts overall by setups. Okay, so we schedule X number of setups and we also look at the the order size. So, but, you know, typically we'll still schedule by setup and say, okay, so average order this week is 156 average order 
is, you know, next week is 370. Okay. Well, they're not going to get it all done, but we still schedule by those setups knowing that it's going to take a little bit longer for the runs. Mm -hmm. And what we let production know that, but we don't, we don't deviate from what, you know, our standard allotted production schedule times are. Right. Are you figuring out those production times based on averages over time? Or are you just like, all right, well, we want to run at a dwell of six seconds instead of four seconds and setup time is an hour. And this we don't get, the, we don't get that granular. We do have historical data. Um, so we'll, we'll be looking at, you know what, how many machines we're running. And after that, we're just going to look at, um, I mean, our app, we, we know what our average order size is every week. It doesn't vary that much unless you've got something that, you know, is just really outside of the norm. And we know, um, our average screen counts are, you know, 3.47 screens, you know, so it's kind of like, all right, so here we go. And in, in embroidery, it's a little different with appliques and things there. We actually do look at, um, certain work because we know it takes longer on the machines down there. So that one, we actually, we do look at that work because there are some, some variances between when we're running caps versus running, you know, a full two color applique on a, on a fleece. But generally so, those machines are telling you like, this is how long it's going to take to run this job. Correct. Yeah. That, well, we know. So when the, when the, when the scheduler is looking at that, so we have someone that uh, manages the front office and also is integral in all of our scheduling. Mm -hmm. So she's going to look at that when, it, when jobs come in, she's going to say, okay, of this particular art number, which is a program for an account, say for the airports, we know we're going to be running it every week, all year long. She knows how long that takes and she'll schedule accordingly. And when she puts that in there and, and she's got some, um, actually some, um, software that helps with that. Um, it's going to give her that next available date for an embroidery with that. So Alex, I kind of cut you off. Did you have something that you wanted to add to that? No, but you did bring up a question <laughs> for me. No. Have you ever thought about, uh, I'll remember it in a second. Have you ever thought about just scheduling your presses continuously versus by the day? If you're, I mean, well, we schedule, the, yeah, we schedule, we don't, we don't, we don't schedule every day. I mean, we're scheduling right now. Um, we're scheduling next available ship date is I think eight business days out maybe. Sure. So we're scheduling, that's the next available date. So we're usually, and, um, we'll usually be around seven, five yeah. to seven days. So, and then we'll just, we'll just, uh, fire up more machines if we need to, to stay sure. within that reorder timeline. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a tough topic for me just because I know the, I know that there's going to be people out there that are going to say, Oh, well you need production data and you need to figure out, you know, your exact times and all this other stuff. But the problem is I keep saying is it's such a custom market where there's things every, like, I feel like the schedule is a living, breathing thing. It isn't a, mm -hmm. Hey, we're booked up three weeks and this is the schedule. It's not going to move, not going to change. It's like customers are calling all day long of like, can I throw in a, 200 piece rush job tomorrow or i need this or actually can i pick this up today and it's like things are moving constantly and i'm just afraid to go so 
meticulous with times and all this and this and lay the schedule out perfectly to where you're like, okay, cool. Like I figured all this out time-wise. And then someone calls and says, throw in this rush order and then you move it into the schedule. And then now everything's fucked because like this doesn't fit in this day anymore. And I got to move half of this job to this day. And it's like, I feel like it would be a nightmare. But my biggest concern with our talk this morning was I just didn't want people to look at that as, okay, now that we're, this is how we're laying this out. This is etched in stone. Yeah. There is a um, propensity of, of, you know, people to get done what's in front of them. Right. And so if they don't have as much in front of them, they may not get as much done. Yeah. So I, I think you do have to, you know, whether you've got, you know, granular scheduling tools or it's, you know, just the fact of instinct for as long as you've been doing this and knowing your shop, I would schedule for the work of what it is. And, and I would say, you know, don't give yourself fluff if you don't need it, you know. And my argument to that is, is that over all these years, we all, the same shit happens all the time. It's like this week, we got so much shit to do. And the first look on Monday, everyone's like, oh, I'm so stressed out. There's so much shit to do. I There's no possible way we could do all this by all week or whatever. There's no way we can get all this done. And then Thursday rolls around and we're like, man, we finished all that shit already. I didn't think that would happen. And it's like, it's the same story every week. It's like, have you ever thought about just not showing the floor of the schedule and maybe just having Bill have it and saying, hey, this is the next job that you're going to do after this one's done? Everybody's. Uh, fucking examining the schedule all day every day i mean produ- <laughs> like the up, office you know, the office is looking at it because customers are calling and trying to figure yeah. out where they can fit stuff in and yeah, yeah. production is looking at it because they want to see what's their next job or what tomorrow looks like or whatever i mean it's fine everyone's here's doing a great job with it i'm just saying that i'm the discussion this morning was do we change the way we've done things for 15 years and like i was just like, I don't know. I need time to think about it. And I thought today I would throw it at you guys and see what you thought. And I, I don't know. I just don't know. My gut is telling me to just keep it the same way it was because I feel like it puts a healthy amount of stress and pressure on people to get those jobs done rather than be like, this is the word. This is the way we're only doing this job today kind of thing. So do they get upset if you take on rush orders or drop-ins? Does that bother them? Not necessarily. I just, my argument again was the early days, the the first five, six years where the small team of us and Alex, you know, some of the guys that work here, I've had the entire time. Yep. Like, I'm like, think of the days where we had like no heat or fucking we were working until 10 o'clock at night every night getting jobs done and we were busting our ass and it's like oh let's go home go to bed wait for tomorrow and now we don't ever work past five it's like we never work late we do what we're doing it's an eight hour day and they're like oh my god i'm so stressed out i'm like you worked a fucking eight hour day like i don't know what to tell you like we're not nothing's crazy like we have heat and water and food and fucking music playing and we work nine to five like what's the problem mm-hmm. but again that i don't know if that's me as a boss just being like fuck it up is that is that all of your employees or is it your uh your newer employees i feel like it's just one of those things that everybody talks and everybody gets into a flow of way of thinking and i, I don't know okay. we've had a couple times 
even in our short two years at the equipment manufacturing company where it's uh, generally one person that can, I don't want to say poison the well, but there's a heavier influence, let's say, from one person. And, you know, when a person leaves or or is dismissed, yeah, that whole psychological shift happens on the crew. And I think some of those go away. And I don't know if you have that or not, but that's, yeah, I think that does happen. Again, like I'm not, it, it, it's not that, it's not that big of an issue. It's not that big of a problem. It's just something that we brought up and I want to think more into it and see if, again, like I'm very open all the time of any employee being like, I don't think this works. Is there a better way to do this? And I would love to look into it. Like, I'm not one of those guys that's just like, this is, this was my idea and it has to stay. Yeah. But yeah. if there's a better way to do it, then cool, let's figure that out. But I don't know if there is. One of the things that we do, if, if anytime we're going to be delivering information that we know um, uh, has the potential to be misinterpreted or um, there are going to be people that are going to look at it negatively, whether it's negative or not, because you always have that group, we'll, we'll pull in you know, the, the leadership zone leaders or whoever that is and say, okay, you know what, we're going to be, you know, we have an announcement, we have whatever it is, you know, new insurance plan, for example, yeah. whatever it could be. Um, and we're, and you know, we get their buy-in that, you know what, we need your support and right away, right up front, as soon as people start talking, cause they do, right. They always do, um, to be, you know, positive and part of the solution. And I don't know if, you've got that core that have been with you through those cold, dark, yeah. long days, the dark ages and, and, and really have, you know, start to, you know, ask them, lean on them to try and, you know, be out there. Cause they're on the floor, right. They're in the thick yeah. of it, you know, and before it even goes there to be that, that, uh, that force of change, you know, as soon as that happens, I mean, maybe there's a way you can get, you know, that group to really, um, shed some light on what it's was versus how it is now. And everything is actually, you know, I just much better. It's, it's one of those things that circles back to what we were talking about earlier, where it's like production versus the sales office. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? They sell the jobs and then they have to produce them. And then it's just like mm-hmm. built tension and, of like, why did you add this job? We don't have time for this, blah, 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 kind of thing. So. Yeah. And you're just shaking your head saying, isn't it nice to have work and a paycheck? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to say from, from your office. I got a question numbers. back to employees. Uh, do you guys promote within a lot? And do you talk about that in the interview process saying, Hey, this is kind of how we do things. And this is the structure and the career path here. Or is it kind of like, uh, you know, come in and we need to start training and producing type thing. And we'll talk about that later. Um, so anytime that we're posting, we post internally first, um, and then we'll post externally, you know, uh, day or two later. Um, but we like to do that to give a shot to people inside as well. Sometimes they, you know, if we don't feel that we have a candidate, um, and we post internally, we'll ask them to interview and then they'll actually sit down with, you know, the, the people they're going to report to for that position. Um, 
and uh, have a group interview within. Um, usually it's a little bit easier if, if we're looking at an internal promotion that um, there's a group of leadership. So it's not one person that, you know, sure. yeah. was the roadblock or creates a negative you know, experience in the, in the employee's mind if they don't get the position. So, uh, but we'll, we'll post, okay. you know, internally for sure. Now, not everything can be filled internally, but you know, yeah, we absolutely. like to start yeah. there. So as far as, you know, um, you know, career paths and opportunities, I think it's really important to take the time to find out what they like, you know, and what, what they're passionate about. And, you know, I'll go back to what I said. We have people that are in roles that aren't even close to where they started in the building. And sure. we have departments that didn't exist um, when I first took over, you know, that, that we've added to. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of trying to find and, and, you know, marry the, the individual to, you know, where, you know, they're in the best seat on the bus. Um, you know, I always say through the interview process or not the, I'm sorry, through the, um, um, when we go through our review process with our employees, you know, you got to tell me what you like, what you don't like, where you want to go. Cause if we're going to get there, we need a roadmap. So what's your roadmap look like? Um, yeah. if I have a roadmap, you know what, then we can look at what skills we need to make sure you're learning to get to where you want to go here. So mm -hmm. it's, but you know, it's, it's just as important to make sure that you open up that channel of dialogue. And it's important that the employee is, you know, they need to own it too and take a piece in that and getting there. So absolutely. Yeah. I have one last question for you, Mitch, and then we'll let you get back to being Lord Perrin. Um, <laughs> do you, do you hire extra people as insurance policies at your shop? Or are you pretty lean with like, this is, this is the amount of people that we need. Um, or I think Alex was talking before about having like, enough management or training staff and then you lose one and then you're kind of screwed like do you have a department say like embroidery where you're like i could run embroidery with 10 people but you have 14 you 12. or 12 yeah, 14. because yeah, yeah, exactly. if someone quits you have that extra but those two you're just kind of like i say insurance policy because that's how i categorize it is like the money I'm paying for this person for these extra people is so that if someone leaves I have that insurance policy to fill their spot do mm -hmm. you have a lot of that with you know 200 300 people um so we have again since we have you know a larger team uh, and a, a bigger bench to pull from we can move people around usually within that um I I try not to overhire but I also um like on Monday I had the conversation I said okay how many operators do we have right now if we were to be slammed tomorrow can we fire up all 18 um mm -hmm. and i know we can't because we had some of our operators went down to embroidery this year because we've been so slammed all year with that so i'm like okay we got to start thinking about it now because you know it takes time and you don't want to try and train someone when you're in the thick of it yeah. so we, we do try and, and preemptively look at when we're, we think we're going to need people when we cycle back up or whatever you know events are happening through the, the course of the year so that it's not that last minute trying to scramble sort of thing but um i think it's yeah. and and I, I when i took over it was um very much the owner was in charge of the back and told people what to do and the vice president was in charge of the front and told people what to do and you know what that's 
when I first started, you know, empowering people, oh my gosh, they were, they didn't like it because they weren't used to it. They weren't used to the decision-making. They weren't used mm -hmm. to a lot of those things. And so nobody wants the know, responsibility. Yeah. They, they all thought they wanted it when they didn't have it, when they were being told what to do, but then Absolutely. that, so then, you know, once you start giving it to them, they're like, oh my gosh, I, I, this is too much. So that was a big learning curve, you know, and to train and to teach and, and to get them into that role. But, you know, my, my thing is I want them to be able to make these decisions. Um, if you're a leader at Perrin, we're servant leaders. Our role is to get them everything they need to succeed. So that's my job. You know, it's, it's not to have to continually throughout the course of the day, tell them what to do. You know, I make, I have to make a lot of decisions through the course of the day, but I, I it shouldn't be telling them what to do. So, but that's, that's not an easy thing to, to instill always. Yeah. Yeah. How much of a hand do you have in the business? To, I mean, obviously you're, you're doing it, but like, are you kind of hands off to a degree of working on the business instead of in the business? Or are you like, you like being in the thick of it? I'm, I'm in the thick of it. I have, well, first of all, I have 14 direct reports. So, I mean, it's, there's a lot of things through the course of the day that, that just within all these departments, um, that I get involved with, um, I still, um, manage, um, our largest account. So I run point in sales on that account. Um, and, um, I also assist sales with, you know, uh, all of our mid tier accounts and, and quite a bit along the way I'm involved with creation. I, before I was in, before coming in here, I was working on, um, some new felt embroidery designs and ideas so that I just, I was going to, so. I was going to ask you, you mentioned a few times that your degree was in graphic design, but you never once yeah. said that you did any graphic design. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and that's probably one of the reasons I love this industry, right? I have a chance to, to really use some of those skills with yeah. color and, and, um, you know, images and formats. Right. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always thought that was cool that we don't necessarily have to be the direct artist, but we can bring their art to life. Yeah. To yeah. yeah. You know I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, Mitch, for coming on and doing this. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Like I said, it's been fun hanging out with you with the guild and stuff and, it looks like we're going to yeah. be doing some more stuff together. Um, yeah, we are. Alex, nice. thank you for joining today. Absolutely. From East yes. Bay and Blue Water. And uh, I'll let you guys go back to work. It's the middle of a Wednesday. All right. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Mitch. We'll see you there. All right. Bye-bye.